Good morning. It's nice to see everyone this morning. I don't get to preach very often, and when I do, I'm very thankful to Kyle and to the other elders to uh, give me the opportunity to do this. I'm uh, helped this morning because Larry's in the front row, so if I get stuck, brother, you're going to come up and, and help me finish this thing. So, All right. So we have come now to the end of a section of the book of Daniel, which sort of ends the narrative portion of of this book. Lord willing, uh, next week we're actually going to start a different section in Daniel, which is more filled with prophetic visions and things that are going to come. Some of the things we've already seen with regards to uh, more explanation of the kingdoms of the world, like we saw in Nebuchadnezzar's vision in chapter 2, but also some really amazing truths about the Messiah and what he is going to do when he comes and he establishes uh, the eternal kingdom and some of the other affairs that will occur throughout the history of the people of Israel leading up to Jesus' coming. <clears throat> but this week, we're, we're actually going to be talking about a, um, a passage that is probably pretty familiar to most of us who grew up in church, Daniel and the lion's den. This account is sort of a high point in the narrative section of Daniel. It's, it's sort of a, a summit almost of a, a picture of God's salvation of his people as he's working to preserve them as faithful exiles. So through the first half of this book, we've seen how the Lord has faithfully cared for Daniel and his friends and all the exiles in the land of Babylon. Right? First, he gave them favor with their captors, and he endowed them all with special gifts and wisdom that they, might, that they might be fit for royal service, right? And so Daniel and his friends spent much of their, much of their career uh, serving the kings of Babylon. The Lord especially blessed Daniel with the ability to see and interpret visions. And he used those gifts to draw the attention of his Babylonian captors and their kings to the fact that God, the Most High God, the living God, is sovereign over the affairs of men. Through these pagan kings, the Lord has faithfully and sovereignly cared for his exiled remnant as he prepares them to return to Judah, to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, and ultimately to make them ready for the Messiah who is going to bring God's everlasting kingdom. So like I said, the story of Daniel in the lion's den is a pretty familiar story. But within the context of Daniel as a whole, it almost feels like it's a little redundant. And by that, I mean that when we read this account, we see that there are a lot of similarities with things that we've already seen in the book of Daniel, right? We saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were rescued from the fiery furnace, right? So we've already had an account where God has miraculously saved uh, his people who have refused to bend the knee to a pagan king's command that they worship someone other than God, right? In this, we've also see, we'll also see at the end of our passage today uh, a proclamation by Darius that looks very, very similar to what Nebuchadnezzar issues after he is done with his humiliation. When he gets his sense, God gives him his senses back and he realizes that God is king, the sovereign over all, all things, um, and he proclaims his, uh, his justice and he proclaims his, uh, his eternal kingdom. We're going to see that as well. So a lot in this story, these themes have already been present through the book of Daniel. But what we're going to see today is that uh, Daniel, this text is a very dramatic account of God's power, of the deception of uh, these rulers who want to, um, 
basically want to depose Daniel uh, of miraculous salvation, of God's justice, and of his glory. And so we're going to spend some time uh, exploring and appreciating the story, and then we'll have some application points along the way. And then before we wrap up, we'll be sure to, to uh, point to the fact of how Daniel helps us to see Christ's work on our behalf. So uh, I was helped by having a conversation with Heather this morning. It's very easy to get lost in the details of this story. There's a lot of intrigue here. It's, very, it's a fascinating tale, um, but it's important that we keep the big picture, right? As we think about what's happening with Daniel, we think about what's happening with, with Darius, um, we need to remember uh, several sort of key points, and, and here they are. First of all, God sovereignly humbles earthly rulers, right? We've seen this through the book of Daniel. We're going to see this today. God sovereignly humbles earthly rulers. Second, God vindicates and exalts his faithful servants. He vindicates and exalts his faithful servants. And third, God points his people towards the hope of the everlasting king. He points his people to the hope of the everlasting king. All right, so let's dig into the text. Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps would give an account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then, then this Daniel became distinguished above all other uh, presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found within him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. This is God's word. So as chapter 6 begins, we find that the situation has become somewhat complicated. Belshazzar, who was the final king of the Babylonians, has been killed, and his kingdom has been delivered into the hands of a man named Darius the Mede. We don't know much about Darius outside the pages of Scripture, because there are really no extra-biblical references to him, and the historical record doesn't really have any gaps between the Babylonians and Cyrus ruling over Babylon. Uh, so likely, it's possible that Darius is actually just another name for Cyrus. We're not sure, but that's a possibility. Darius, like his predecessors, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, recognize that Daniel has exceptional abilities, and they appoint him to a position of great authority. Right? He's overseeing the overseers, these 120 satraps, who are really responsible as governors throughout the kingdom for, uh, for the king. As he oversees the administration of the kingdom, it doesn't take long for Daniel to begin to distinguish himself, even among these officials. We see in the text that there was an excellent spirit within him, and it caused him to excel in matters of governance. And so Darius decides that he's going to appoint Daniel as head over all the rulers in the kingdom. He's basically going to put the entire kingdom under, under Daniel's charge as some kind of prime minister, right, who is solely responsible to the king for the administration of the kingdom. His, his ascendancy here, right, is a clear example of God's continued faithfulness to his people through the times of these, these turbulent times of the earthly rise and fall of kingdoms. Though the golden head of the Babylonian empire has fallen, 
God is now preserving and prospering his exiled remnant in the silver arms of the Medo-Persian Empire. Remember back to the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, right? Golden head was the Babylonians, silver arms, the Medes and the Persians. And God continues to preserve them even through the turnover in this, um, in the, the rise and fall of these empires. However, as we see, not everyone is happy about Daniel's rise to prominence. In verse 4, we see that the presidents and the satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. Motivated by jealousy, these officials begin to look for some complaint that they can make to the king against Daniel's loyalty, character, or ability. Since he had served the Babylonian kings for more than 40 years, perhaps there was evidence that Daniel's loyalty still lay with the previous regime. You know, if, if uh, conquest was risky business and Darius was a new ruler over the Babylonians, he needed to have uh, rulers under him and advisors that he could trust. So if Daniel could be shown to be someone who was untrustworthy, they might be able to have him uh, removed from this position. Or perhaps in a long career, we all have mistakes that we regret. Maybe there was something in Daniel's past that perhaps uh, would indicate that he was neither competent nor reliable to carry out these duties. And so these satraps and these rulers and officials get together and they're looking for something that they can bring up, a legitimate complaint against Daniel. But as we see, they could find no ground for any complaint or fault. Uh, they could find no ground for any, or, or any complaint or any fault because Daniel was faithful and no error or fault was found with him. We see that in verse 5. And we think about this, right? Daniel was faithful. That means, means he was trustworthy. And the words for error and fault that we see in this verse could indicate the fact that he was neither neglectful of his duties nor was he corrupt. So these men can find no legitimate complaint against Daniel. So what are they to do? Undeterred by the truth, right, and by wisdom, they decide that they are going to set up, a, devise a scheme to entrap him. We shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God, right? Daniel clearly had a reputation and a life that exhibited worship to God. And so they knew because of his character and because of his devotion to God that the only way that they were going to be able to, to, uh, to remove him from a position of power was to somehow entrap him and pit him and his worship of God against his loyalty to the king. This theme of opposition of the, of the wicked opposing the righteous is a common one that we see throughout the scriptures. It finds its origins all the way back in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and, Adam and Eve sinned and God pronounced his curse, he put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And this enmity was to indicate that conflict between God's people and the wicked would continue, out, would continue through human history. We see an example of this right after the fall in the garden, when in the very next chapter, we see that uh, Cain, the wicked Cain, murders his righteous brother, Abel. So even from the beginning, this pronouncement uh, took hold. And, and we see many examples throughout the Old Testament. This is simply one of them here in Daniel. And in the New Testament, Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the woman's seed prophesied in, in uh, Genesis 3, says that the Pharisees oppose him because they have the, they're of their father, the devil. 
Jesus goes on to tell his disciples in John 15 and 16 that the world will hate them because it hated him. In John 15, 18, we read, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And in John 16, 1, he says, I have said all of these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whomever, when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Is this not the situation that Daniel finds himself in today? Loyal, faithful, trusting the Lord, but because God is exalting him, and God loves him, and God has chosen Daniel out of the world in these exiles, the world hates him. As Christians, we should not be surprised when we are despised for our faith in Christ. Because he came to expose the work of darkness, those that love the darkness hate Jesus. At one time, we all hated Jesus. This hatred by the world often comes in the form of open persecution. It was common during periods of the early church, and it's still a reality for our brothers and sisters who live in countries where governments have made it illegal to preach the gospel. We prayed this morning for a church in Russia. Even though nominally Christian, Russian Orthodox, uh, we had uh, missionaries, the Rogersons, who were actually expelled from Russia for proclaiming the gospel, for trying to tell people about Jesus. And it's the same in places like China and parts of India and even closed Muslim countries where Christians face the threat of physical harm or death for their maintaining their confession of faith in Christ. Now, in the post-Christian West, this hatred can look more like public ridicule or slander or loss of reputation. This opposition, as our Lord says, has one goal. It's to cause us to fall away and to deny Christ. Remember the parable, the parable of the sower that we talked about a few weeks ago? The one kind of soil that produced a crop and sprang up, but was eventually choked out by the weeds. The cares of the world choked out their faith. The desire to be acceptable in the eyes of the world poses a very real threat to our souls. It's worth some reflection this week to consider the ways in which you are tempted to compromise to avoid godly confrontation with the world. I'm not saying that every conflict is because we are faithful followers of Jesus. I myself have had plenty of self-inflicted wounds on social media for which I admit that I am fully responsible and have had to repent. But there are areas of our life where we pull punches. Perhaps it's failing to speak up when a friend or a neighbor needs to hear the gospel, but we're ashamed. Or when we go, go along to get along at work or at school by participating in crude or coarse talk so that we can fit in. The temptation to compromise on the goodness of God's design for human sexuality, gender, and family is incredibly strong. And being unwilling to speak the truth on these matters to avoid being despised by the broader culture is a significant temptation for us today. But take heart. The God who protected Daniel from the plots of these evil men is with us too. If you're united to, faith by, uh, to Christ by faith, his Holy Spirit indwells you and empowers you to stand firm. So cling to Christ and trust that he will deliver you so that when the day of your testing arrives, you will not fall away. 
Let's go back to the text. Verse 6. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance that enforces an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, uh, for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. So these conspirators who were unable to find anything uh, that was uh, rightfully wrong with Daniel uh, devised this plan. And they, the text says that they came by agreement to Darius with what appears to be a very strange recommendation. It's interesting, this term by agreement, when you read the translation, it could also be uh, as a throng. So imagine everyone showing up, right? Not just a couple of folks coming in and whispering in Darius's ear that this is some sort of secret plot. No, everyone is in on this except Daniel, and they all come before the king asking him to do this. And this very strange recommendation, they want him to issue a law forbidding petitions to any man or God for a period of 30 days except to the king. Anyone found violating this law would be thrown into the den of lions. In verse 7, the officials even lie to the king about their intent, telling him the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, and the, governor, and the governors are agreed that establishing this law is the right thing to do. It doesn't seem, the text doesn't give us any indication here, and it really doesn't seem like Daniel may be even present when this is, when this is being done. Uh, and we also know that Daniel makes, there's no uh, indication in the text that he makes any attempt to convince the king not to sign this law. Darius has nearly his entire council of advisors show up in court one day recommending that he establish, establish this law, but his most trusted advisor, advisor isn't, either isn't there or isn't offering his opinion on this matter. At this point, Darius's spidey sense should have been tingling. However, if he suspected anything, it didn't stop him from acting on their recommendation. Remember, these events are, are most likely taking uh, place very early in Darius's reign. And this law may have pre presented a very appealing way to consolidate his power over the people of ba Babylon, like what Nebuchadnezzar was hoping to achieve with his golden image. By controlling his subjects' acts of religious devotion and worship, Darius could display his sovereignty over these newly conquered people. After all, his gods had given him victory over the gods of the Babylonians. To the victor goes the spoils, right? For the conspirators, the key to success of this whole plot is the fact that the law of the Medes and the Persians was unalterable once it had been established. This fact is attested to in extra-biblical historical sources as well. And what this meant was that not even Darius himself would be able to rescind the order once it had been given. All the officials would have to do is catch Daniel in the act of praying to his God as he was known to do, and the king would have no discretion regarding enforcing this injunction. It was a foolproof plan. This text is forcing us now to reconcile with the question of ultimate authority. What is supreme? 
Is the unchangeable law of the Medes and Persians supreme? Or is the law of the eternal, unchangeable God supreme? An unchangeable law requires an eternal, unchangeable lawgiver who is both wise enough to establish and powerful enough to enforce these laws. And as finite, fallible creatures, man is neither wise enough to establish laws that should be unchangeable, nor does he possess the kind of immortality necessary to enforce this unchangeable decree in perpetuity. Only God is wise and powerful enough to decree unchangeable laws. Man's attempt to do this, as we see in the text today, really reveals pride and foolishness. These wicked officials are trusting in the unchangeableness of the laws of men that are easily broken. But Daniel, as we're about to see, is trusting in the unchanging God whose law cannot be broken. Let's look at verses 10 through 15. We'll see them spring the trap on Daniel. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. So the king has signed this very strange law. But Daniel, in full knowledge of the king's decree, and knowing the consequences of violating it, proceeds to maintain his practice of praying to the Lord three times a day to offer both his thanksgiving and his petition for the exiled remnant. In a few weeks, Lord willing, we're going to read Daniel 9. And Daniel 9 is a prayer of Daniel that is actually offered in the first year of King Darius. And so as we read Daniel 9, we can think back to this uh, event where Daniel is up in his upper room with his windows open towards Jerusalem, petitioning, confessing the sins of his people, and praying for God to grant mercy and relief to them. So as we get to that chapter, let's think back to this, and we we can have an idea of what Daniel was actually praying when when these men showed up. His worship was not a secret, right? Like we said, he had his windows in his upper room open toward Jerusalem, and his prayers would have somewhat been public. People may have been able to walk down the street and look up and say, well, there's Daniel praying three times a day like he normally does. And so Daniel makes no attempt to hide what he's doing. And it was during one of these prayer sessions that the conspirators showed up and discovered that Daniel was breaking the recently signed law, right? We see this same word again by agreement. So after thronging in the king's court and convincing him to pass this law, they throng over to Daniel's house and all show up barging in and finding him uh, unsurprisingly praying to his God three times a day, as was his custom. It's just, you know... 
just think about what, what a conspiracy. Everybody's running around. Like, this is clearly not a conspiracy. It's out in the open. Um, so then, which is one of the, the more, humor, not really humorous, but it's kind of a funny scene. When, after Daniel has been caught doing this, you can almost see him rushing back to the court, thronging back to the court of Darius, and in sort of a smug and self-righteous kind of way, like a, a child who's maybe tattling on their siblings, says, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of the lions? And poor Darius, still oblivious to the situation that's going on, says, the thing stands according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. This is the second time that we're seeing that phrase, the law of the Medes and Persians, which can't be revoked. We're going to see it one more time here in the text. Then these wicked officials finally spring the trap. Daniel was caught praying to his God, paying no attention to the king's command because he prays to his God three times a day. You can almost feel the pause in the room as like the light bulb goes off over Darius's head and he realizes what has happened, right? He, he realizes that this has been a trap and not only is Daniel in danger, but potentially Darius might be in danger as well. The ESV says that Darius was much distressed about this fact. And so another way to think about this, another translation of that is that he was exceedingly displeased. And so he determines that he's going to rescue Daniel from what is clearly a trap that has clearly been set from the start. Darius labors and he struggles, as we see here in uh, verse 14. So picking up verse 14. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. So Darius is laboring. He's struggling. He's trying to find a way to save Daniel. Clearly he is upset about this, but it's clear by sundown that he has no options left. There's nothing that he is going to do. And when the, when the officials show up the third time to remind the king that the law of the Medes and Persians is unchangeable, what they really are most likely doing is presenting somewhat of a veiled threat to him. They know that he wants to save Daniel, right? It's very clear. That's not a surprise. But they are using this law against him. It, to see this, it's important to understand maybe a little bit more about the Medo-Persian political life. So here's an extensive quote from uh, the Encyclopedia Judica, which talks about the Medes and the Persian. The Medo-Persian king ruled by the favor of Ahura Mazda, which was their supreme god, and his power of life and death was unlimited. Nevertheless, once fixed in a certain prescribed form, his decisions could not be revoked by him. According, as we see, according to the law of Medes and Persians in Daniel 6.9. In practice, the king consulted his counselors and could not afford to offend the Persian nobility. 
The empire was divided into enormous administrative units known as satrapies. The satrapy beyond the river to which Judah belonged extended from the Euphrates to the Mediterranean. The satrap, right, these officials, what they were the head of the administration, they were commander of troops, they were supreme judges and tax collectors within their satrapy. The satrap was virtually omnipotent in his satrapy, but he had to consult his advisors and it was imprudent and it was prudent to submit controversial questions to the king. So now we begin to see the position that Darius finds himself in. He has these very powerful people. Yes, they are subject to him, but many of them are not even Persians. They're conquered peoples. And they have armies of conquered peoples who report to them. And so Darius finds himself in this precarious position where he wants to save Daniel, but he knows that if he goes back against his word, he goes back against the law of Medes and Persians, then he's not just violating a longstanding tradition, but he's potentially risking rebellion and perhaps even a trip to the lion's den himself. At least Nebuchadnezzar had the power to deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from his own hand, but Darius, as we see, is utterly powerless to save Daniel. Daniel must be cast into the lion's den. And strangely, amid all of this, Daniel makes no defense of himself to the king. Just like he made no plea to have this law not passed in the first place, Daniel is silent. And I think it's important that we're meant to see that Daniel's silence here is an act of faith. Daniel clearly understands the nature of this law, and he understands the law of the nature of the Medes, uh, uh, the law of the nature, the law of the Medes and Persians, and the political consequences of asking for mercy. But Daniel's trust is not in the power of Darius to save him. It's in the sovereignty of God to do so. He had witnessed how God had delivered his friends from a fiery furnace. And Daniel also knew about God's promise to subdue the kingdoms of the earth and establish his eternal kingdom. Daniel didn't need to appeal to Darius because he believed that regardless of the outcome of this situation, whether he lived or died, he would inherit the eternal kingdom with the Lord. Life with God was far more important to Daniel than whatever happened with the lions. There was nothing that the king, the conspirators, nor the lions could do to thwart God's plan. So in the face of this injustice, he remained silent, entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Let's pick up in verse 16. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The, the king declared to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. So Darius, at, at the end of his resources, and unable to rely on either his advisors or his gods, acquiesces and casts Daniel into the lion's den. This, I think, is the low point of Darius's humiliation. God has brought the king of the greatest empire on the earth to a place where he is powerless to save the life of one man. And what Darius says next, I think, proves that he appreciates his lowly estate. 
in a kind of prayer that might be characterized as desperation mixed with faith, Darius cries out to, to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. He doesn't appeal to Ahura Mazda of the Persians. He doesn't appeal to Marduk of the Babylonians. He appeals to Yahweh, the God of Jerusalem, who, according to pagan belief, would have been considered his captive God. His only hope, then, is to cast himself on the mercy of a foreign captive God. So the level of humility required for him to do this can't necessarily be underestimated here. This is an act, this is an act of humility. So then he sets a stone to close the mouth of the lion's den, and he and the other nobles apply their seals as the final emblematic act of the unchangeable nature of the law of the Medes and Persians. So for all intents and purposes, Daniel has been closed up in his tomb. Distraught, Darius returns to the palace, refusing food, entertainment, and sleep. This is clearly not the situation that he expected to find himself in. This law was supposed to demonstrate his power and obtain obedience from his subjects. But instead, what was likely going to happen is that his most loyal advisor was going to end up dead, and a group of a throng of disloyal, murderous advisors are going to be in positions of power throughout his kingdom. And so Darius has been humbled, much like Nebuchadnezzar. But the question remains is whether he will, be, he will find mercy like Nebuchadnezzar or whether he is going to be judged like Belshazzar. Growing up, I was taught that the point of this story was to have faith like Daniel when you face the lions of life. Dare to be a Daniel. Having faith in the Lord amidst the trials of life is certainly one of the lessons that we learn from this account. Right? Daniel's faith is to be commended, certainly. However, the author spills a lot more ink on Darius's despair than on Daniel's faith. And I think that's worth paying attention to. Darius is a Gentile and probably has little to no knowledge of the history of God's deliverance of his people. He simply sees his circumstances with these corrupt officials and his inability to save Daniel or himself and asks in great weakness for salvation. This is how we need to understand our own condition before the Lord. We're unable to escape from the consequences of our sin. And our enemy, the devil, would devour us like a roaring lion. We need the supernatural power of Christ's forgiveness to silence our accuser and to deliver us from God's righteous judgment against sin. I think it's this kind of humility which serves as fertile ground for the seeds of the gospel to grow and to produce repentance and faith. Yes, dare to be a Daniel. But first, dare to despair like a Darius. Verse 18, or verse, uh, picking up in verse 19. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth 
and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad, and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and all those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all the bone, broke all their bones to pieces. So Darius, in his despair, unable to sleep, finds himself early the next morning at the break of day, making haste to the lion's den to find out what has happened to Daniel. But before he even reaches the den, he cries out in great anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Darius's question here is worded very similar to the prayer that he offered earlier. The difference here is that he ascribes this title, the living God, to Yahweh. And this is similar to Nebuchadnezzar's confession in Daniel 4.34 when he says, The Most High God lives forever. And it's an indication that Darius has come to a point where he confesses this same truth about the sovereignty of Yahweh. Daniel's response here is really the only words we see from him in the entire account. And he greets the king with these words, O king, live forever. And while that seemed to be sort of a common greeting for royalty within the, the Babylonian court, because we see the satraps use this, this uh, greeting earlier, the fact that it's coming from Daniel, telling the king to live forever, Daniel, the servant of the living God, right, the God who has the power over life and death, is good news to the king. Daniel tells him that God has sent an angel to shut the lion's mouth, and not only had he not died, but he had not even been harmed. And this had been done because Daniel was blameless before God and had done no harm to the king. The living God had vindicated his servant and delivered him from the schemes of these unjust men. Then in what is perhaps one of the most stunning and gruesome reversals of, his, of fortune that we see in the scriptures, the king orders that all the conspirators who maliciously accused Daniel as well as their families, be thrown into the lion's den as punishment for their treason. If Darius had been concerned at all about his kingdom, he knew that if the God who was willing to save Daniel, the God of life and death, could do this, that he had nothing to fear from exercising justice and punishing these men who were seeking to, to, uh, to be treasonous towards him. This, too, is an act of faith. The Lord had not just rescued Daniel, but he had also provided rescue to Darius from these wicked and scheming officials. Ironically, the unchangeable law of the Medes and Persians had come back upon the heads of these officials. And Darius celebrates, ultimately celebrates this great victory with a proclamation to the nations that we'll see here in verses 25 through 28. Then King Darius, who wrote to all, then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, "Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for He is the living God, enduring forever, 
His kingdom shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on the earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Like Nebuchadnezzar, like Nebuchadnezzar's proclamation, this one is addressed to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. And it extols God's everlasting nature and his kingdom, his sovereignty over the affairs of men, and the mighty signs and wonders that he performs to demonstrate his power. However, a unique element of Darius's proclamation is his recognition of God's salvation. He delivers and rescues he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. The living God is not just powerful, but merciful and full of compassion for his people. He cares for his worshipers in a way that the other pagan gods don't. So the king commands his subjects should fear and tremble before the God of Daniel because of these mighty salvific works. The God who reigns above all earthly kingdoms is to be worshipped because he is both powerful and merciful to those who serve him. The rescue of Daniel, and I might add Darius as well, is just a foretaste of the greater salvation that God's people have by faith in Jesus Christ. Like Daniel, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and did many wondrous deeds that proved that God was with him. And like Daniel, Jesus was innocent. He did nothing wrong. But yet he was despised and betrayed and condemned to death on unjust charges. Like Daniel, Jesus did not open his mouth to defend himself, but submitted himself to the will of God and was judged like a sinner and condemned to die. But while Daniel was spared death, God did not spare his son. but offered him up as a sacrifice in the place of sinners by crucifying him on a cross. On the cross, a great exchange took place. Jesus received the justice that we sinners deserve, and we received his perfect righteousness, which makes us acceptable to God. While Daniel escaped death, Jesus defeated it. The Lord himself removed the stone from Jesus' tomb three days later, and he emerged in a glorified body, but still bearing the wounds of his crucifixion as the victor over sin and death. With the benefit of living on this side of the cross, we can see in a way much more clearly that would not have necessarily been clear to the Jewish exiles to whom this book was written, that Daniel is ultimately pointing us to Jesus. He is the son of man, who has ascended to the heavenly throne where he presently and sovereignly rules all things. He is coming back with the clouds of heaven to judge the living and the dead. Those who are found trusting in him will inherit the eternal kingdom and dwell with him forever in peace and happiness. But those who reject him will face everlasting condemnation. If you're hearing this message today, and you are not trusting Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, this reality represents a crisis. 
the living God, our creator, is holy. He made us in his image, which means that we were created to reflect his purity and his character. But we have failed to do this. The living God is just. That means that it's not in his nature to let sinners go unpunished for their sin. The universal guilt of mankind before a holy, just, and powerful God is an objective truth of the scriptures. This means that even if you don't feel guilty, you still are guilty. The punishment for rebellion against the eternal God is eternal death. The Bible describes that as hell. The Bible describes it as a lake of fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels, but where rebellious men and women will be sent as well. It's a place of continuous, conscious punishment from which there is no escape and no relief. It's a place where God's righteous, perfect justice will be on display against sinners forever without any hope of mercy. But the good news is that God offers us pardon and forgiveness and eternal life by faith when we repent of our sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the Apostle Paul from Romans 5, verses 6 through 10. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Amen? Amen. If listening to God's word this morning, you recognize yourself to be a sinner who's deserving of this judgment, and you also recognize that there is nothing that you can do for yourself to remove your guilt before God, then my plea to you is to look to Jesus. If you'd like to know more how to follow him and how to have faith in him, I or any of the other elders or any member here this morning would love to talk to you after our service today. We've seen throughout the narratives in the book of Daniel these themes that God sovereignly humbles earthly rulers, that he vindicates and exalts his faithful servants, and that he points his people towards the hope of the everlasting king. In chapter 6, we saw these satraps and officials were trusting in their cunning and their cleverness and their human tradition, and the Lord judged them. We saw that Darius was originally trusting in his own power and the counsel of untrustworthy men, and the Lord humbled him. When he repented, the Lord established him in his kingdom. And we saw Daniel was trusting in the living God, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and whose kingdom endures from generation to generation. And the Lord vindicated and exalted him. Just as he cared for the exiles, just as he cared for the exiles in Babylon, the Lord continues to sovereignly care for his exiles throughout the world today. The kingdoms of men rise and fall, but the everlasting kingdom is both here in our local church and coming in the new heavens and the new earth. The return of the King, King Jesus, is imminent. And as we wait patiently for it, 
The Holy Spirit sanctifies us, sustains us, and defends us as we faithfully endure unjust suffering and the vindication and await the vindication that comes from God. Hear these words of encouragement from the Apostle Peter to us exiles. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the, grace, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish, establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so very much for the great salvation that you show us. We thank you, Father, that you have not left us in our sin. Lord, we deserve the lion's den. We deserve to be on the cross. We deserve death for what we have done in rebelling against you. But instead, Lord, you have kindly shown us mercy. We thank you, Father, that as you sustain us as our sovereign God and as the rise and fall of nations come and go, and Lord, as the cares and concerns of this world swirl about, that you are still at work within your church, that your word is not coming back void, but instead you are building your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to indwell us by your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to grant us faith and repentance. We pray that you would help us to endure suffering, wrong suffering in this world, and that we might be an encouragement to one another here in this local body. And Father, ultimately, help us to lift up our eyes to look forward to the day when the Lord Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom in the new heavens and new earth. Give us an eternal perspective, Father, that helps us to realize that these present sufferings, while difficult, are not ultimate, but that your salvation for your people is ultimate. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.